0: Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present David Pepper, former chair of Ohio's Democratic Party who warns that Ohio Republicans' August 8th Issue 1 referendum is a threat to democracy in Ohio and the rest of the country. Alex Press, staff writer at Jacobin Magazine, who discusses the Teamsters Union's preparation for a possible historic strike against UPS and how this confrontation relates to the re-energized U.S. labor movement. And Yochai Ram, a psychiatrist in private practice in New York, who talks about the work of the patient-led research collaborative that's collecting data on the symptoms and treatment of the condition known as long COVID. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories.
1: A year ago, Brazil's then-president Jair Bolsonaro gathered foreign diplomats in the presidential palace where he made baseless claims against Brazil's electronic voting system, which caused a public outcry and were quickly denounced by critics as politically motivated disinformation. Eleven weeks later, Bolsonaro narrowly lost his re-election campaign to former leftist president Luiz Ignacio Lula da Silva, After the former president's supporters ransacked the presidential palace and government offices on January 8th this year, Bolsonaro's top aides were linked to the violence. Brazil's electoral judges have now banned Bolsonaro from running for office for eight years for abusing his powers and peddling immoral and appalling lies during last year's acrimonious election. The Guardian reports that five of the Superior Electoral Court's seven judges voted to banish the far-right former president, who relentlessly vilified the South American country's democratic institutions during his unsuccessful battle to win a second term in power. Bolsonaro will only be able to seek elected office again in 2030 when he'll be 75 years old. As President Biden runs for re-election, he lists congressional passage of the Chips and Science Act, which commits $52 billion to the research and production of semiconductors in the U.S. as one of his proudest achievements. Building domestic computer chip fabrication plants are part of the effort to meet national security goals while restoring America's manufacturing capacity. Just north of Phoenix, Arizona, 12,000 workers are constructing a two-square-mile campus that will house a new semiconductor production plant being built by the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation. The plant will soon produce cutting-edge semiconductor chips, critical technologies that power nearly all electronics, from cars and children's toys to medical devices, iPhones and missiles. The president pledged to build a new chip plant with union labor. But the American Prospect reports that while some union contractors have secured jobs at the worksite, most workers there are non-union. Union members complain that the Taiwanese plant owner has resisted signing union agreements, the site has been plagued by accidents, alleged wage theft, and costly setbacks. While unions urged the Commerce Department to require that chip plant fund recipients must negotiate labor agreements, child care, and domestic material content, those standards were stripped out before the legislation was finalized. The Black Hills in South Dakota are sacred to the Lakota Sioux Tribe. It's near some of the poorest indigenous communities in the United States, as well as land rich in natural resources. In 1980, the Sioux won a historic victory at the U.S. Supreme Court, claiming the land was illegally taken from seven Sioux tribes. The High Court ruled the tribes were entitled to tens of millions of dollars in compensation. But tribal leaders refused to take the funds, now worth over $1.3 billion, insisting they'd rather have the land back. In the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868, the U.S. government promised the Sioux the absolute and undisturbed use and occupation of roughly half of present-day South Dakota. But when gold was discovered in the Black Hills in 1877, Congress claimed the land through eminent domain and forced the Sioux onto smaller reservations across North and South Dakota. In 1975, the U.S. Court of Claims authorized a payment of $100 million, which the seven tribes refused to accept. Frank Starr comes out, president of the Oglala Sioux Tribe, who oversees the impoverished Pine Ridge Reservation, told the Christian Science Monitor, The Black Hills are not for sale. Our tribes do not want the money. We want the land back. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo.
0: As multiple investigations into Donald Trump's criminality move forward, the disgraced former president announced that he had received a letter from Special Counsel Jack Smith stating that he is a target of a grand jury investigation into his efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election result and the January 6 insurrection. While media attention is focused on Trump's 2024 presidential campaign and his legal troubles, less attention has been focused on the Republican Party's assault on democracy in state legislatures across the country. In recent years, GOP legislatures in dozens of states have passed voter suppression laws, gerrymandered congressional and state legislative districts, criminalized abortion, stigmatized the LGBTQ community, banned books, censored U.S. history in public schools, and weakened gun safety laws. While these measures are largely unpopular, Republicans are working to subvert Democratic institutions in order to insulate themselves from accountability and remain in power. An example of this is now playing out in the state of Ohio, where the GOP is proposing an August 8th referendum ballot question known as Issue 1, that if passed will increase the threshold needed to amend the Ohio Constitution from 50% plus 1 to 60% that many believe is motivated by the Republicans' goal of defeating a November ballot measure on abortion access, as well as blocking future voter initiatives to increase the minimum wage and implement redistricting reform to prevent gerrymandering. Your reporter spoke with David Pepper, former chair of the Ohio Democratic Party and author of the new book titled Saving Democracy, a User's Manual for Every American. Here he talks about what's at stake in Ohio's August 8th referendum, not just for the people of Ohio, but the entire country.
2: It's very clearly about a legislature that knows it's far more extreme than the people of Ohio. And, and like in Kansas, where we saw an abortion referendum end up confirming uh, Kansas as a pro-choice state, they know that in, in November, there's a ballot initiative that would Currently has about 59% support. You know they would lose, uh, just like they would lose, likely a minimum wage increase, and a lot of efforts to reverse the very extreme legislation they're passing through a very gerrymandered legislature. So, rather than you know actually try and reflect the views of the people of Ohio, uh, what are they doing? They're trying to make it so the people of Ohio cannot either through their own legislature or in this case through direct democracy have that majority viewpoint represented in Ohio law. So it's, it's a, you know, I write these books about democracy being under attack and it's all, you know, being done because a group that represents a minority worldview is scared of that majority being reflected. And in this case, they are so scared of it. They're willing to take away the power of the people themselves to shape their own constitution. So it's a really uh, horrible case study of how far they're willing to go. And the fact that it's an August special election gives away just how cynical this is. They've had 100 years to say they wanted to change the Constitution. This 50 percent constitutional amendment process has been in place since the progressive era of the early 1900s. They are choosing this August of all times to make this change because they knew that if they didn't do it in time, that the pro-choice amendment would likely be passed. So they're scheduling an August special election. They're doing it on the date that they themselves made illegal to have special elections only months ago, uh, because they realize if they didn't do it now that they would be basically too late. Uh, so it's it's an abuse of power that's stunning, in a way, but also completely on brand for a group of people who are sitting in a state house with almost no accountability, thanks to gerrymandering. Uh, the hope is that this wakes up uh, oh, the Ohio majority to vote, you know, to vote the right way, to vote no and then to vote to protect choice come November.
0: This initiative to uh, require 60% of the vote to change the Constitution or change laws in Ohio seems a perfect example of minority rule where the 41% dominate the 59%. It doesn't get much clearer than that.
3: No,
2: it, yeah, exactly. It's such a bald-faced, absurd argument when you think about what they're saying. You know, They're asking the people of Ohio to disempower themselves They're asking the majority, don't let your actual majority will rule the day. Put it in the hands of 41%. But they're also, of course, saying, give us more power because they're not proposing that when they pass legislation, it needs 60%. No, they're happy as a gerrymandered legislature that generally represents extremism or the mainstream views. They're happy to vote legislation all the time with 51% of the vote, as extreme as it gets. But they're saying for the people how to reverse our extreme legislation that we passed for 51% of the vote, they need to get to 60%. So they keep saying all over the state, oh, you know, we, we should be really engaging in a deliberative, broad consensus in order to change the Constitution. And my response is, well, we wouldn't need to do it as much if you guys actually did that same broad, deliberative process to pass the insane laws you're passing. But you don't. You know, you passed a law— that banned abortion, no exceptions for rape or incest, that forced a 10 year old rape victim to go to Indiana to get a care there she couldn't get here. So you passed that law. That reflects about 10% of Ohioans. So don't complain when Ohioans, a majority of them, say, well, we're going to change the Constitution to undo what you did. This is not an Ohio thing only. For Ohio, we got to stop it. But this is part of a much broader national effort. That national effort, and this is what my two books are about, is to use state houses to get most of the far right's dirty work done. But the problem for them is what happened in Kansas, what happened in Kentucky and Michigan. To keep using state houses to push extremism, we need to get rid of the most powerful check against those state houses, which are constitutional amendments by the people. So this is not an Ohio-based reform. This is something that they want to bring to every state where they can in order to lock the people out of their own governments that they've taken over through gerrymandering. If this succeeds in Ohio, if their side succeeds, my worry is we'll see it in many states. If we crush it in Ohio, my hope is this is not a quote-unquote reform worth pursuing anywhere else because the people see right through it. So this has real national implications.
0: That was David Pepper. Former chair of the Ohio Democratic Party and author of the new book titled Saving Democracy A User's Manual for Every American. Find more analysis and commentary on Ohio's August 8th referendum and the Republican Party's subversion of democracy across the country by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Members of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters Union have been training on how to organize picket lines as negotiations with shipping giant UPS stalled ahead of a July 31st contract talks deadline. If 340,000 Teamster drivers, warehouse workers, and other employees walk off the job, the nation will witness the second-largest strike at a single employer in U.S. history. Union members working for UPS voted last month to authorize a strike if a deal is in reach by the end of July. While the company has already agreed to a union demand to install air conditioning and improve ventilation in UPS delivery trucks amid rising global temperatures, a major obstacle to signing a new five-year contract is the demand to increase the wages of part-time warehouse workers from $15.50 to $25 an hour and create additional full-time jobs in the company's warehouses. Teamsters' president, Sean O'Brien, insists that UPS needs to start sharing more of its profits to improve the working condition of its employees. The company's 2022 operating profits hit more than $13 billion for an operating margin of 13%. Your reporter spoke with Alex Press, a staff writer at Jacobin Magazine, who discusses the Teamsters' union's preparation for a strike against UPS and how this confrontation relates to the re-energized U.S. labor movement that's emerged since the COVID pandemic and rising inflation.
3: The 340,000 Teamster members who work at UPS across the country have a number of issues. So the workforce there is divided into the really recognizable UPS drivers, right? The guy that delivers your package at the door. And then people who work inside the UPS buildings, the warehouses, those people are package handlers, right? So they sort the packages, they load them onto the truck, and they actually comprise the majority of workers at UPS. And the issues right now where there's a big distance between UPS and the union Tend to center around those inside workers. Those workers are part time. They make much less money um, per hour compared to the drivers. They've tended to be kind of left out as far as the priorities at the workplace. As far as going forward, people are going to hear about UPS drivers, how they make, you know, around $90,000 a year on average. Those are not the workers where they're kind of the company has dug in here. It is the ones inside with part-time schedules and much worse pay who are really maybe what is forced to lead to a strike.
0: There are estimates that this strike, if it proceeds, could cost $3.2 billion to the U.S. economy, not to mention loss of customers and revenue to UPS. Maybe you could spell that out a little bit more about Hopefully, these negotiations succeed in avoiding a strike. But what are the consequences if the workers do strike?
3: The packages that move through UPS's trucks account for around 6% of U.S. GDP, right? This is an incredibly important workforce for the U.S. economy. Goods are being able to be delivered from, you know, the biggest cities in the country down to very rural areas. You know, all across the country, you can get a UPS driver there. Um, And so this is integral. Um, to sort of the functioning of all other sorts of industries as well. Now, these UPS workers struck once before, so we know exactly how impactful a strike will be. In 1997, they struck also, once again, over issues of part-time work not being enough. Um, The slogan during that 1997 strike was part-time America won't work. And so during that strike, it lasted around a couple weeks. It cost the company around $40 million per day, Now, obviously, with an inflation and with the great increase in the company's operations, now the estimates, as you mentioned, are that, you know, a two-week strike this year could cost over $3 billion to the economy. Of course, when UPS no longer has workers delivering its packages, you get the U.S. Postal Service and Amazon and FedEx coming in and taking those customers that need their packages delivered. Um, And so UPS also loses those customers. Sean O'Brien, the president of the Teamsters, was asked about negotiations breaking down and the company sort of blaming the union itself for this breakdown that could cost the country and the economy quite significantly. And he made a point to say that if there is a strike, it's going to be UPS striking themselves.
0: Well, that's just one more quick question, if I could. How do you see this current situation at UPS and the possibility of a strike fitting into the larger picture of an energized and more militant U.S. labor movement that we've seen evolve in recent years, especially after COVID?
4: Sure,
3: I mean, COVID has really, when you speak to workers who are either organizing new unions or going on strikes or going on the offensive, um, demanding what they feel is the bare minimum they need to survive, they will often tell you COVID changed things, right? It sort of clarified the lines. Um, They saw that their employers were willing to risk their health, the health of their family, Um, to keep a business functioning, even as those employers often were not working on the shop floors. They were either working remotely or otherwise protected and minimized from risk. And so we are seeing the result of that. We're seeing that in new organizing of unions at places like Starbucks or Chipotle or REI. And we're also seeing workers sort much more self-confident, right, saying, well, I know that I'm the reason this company stayed afloat. I know I'm why UPS is making larger profits than ever before. And I deserve a cut of that. I am sacrificing. I am risking my health. They are reflective of this moment where workers say, we know best. We know what this industry needs to do. And we know what we need to survive and what we're worth. Enough. We're not going to take it anymore.
0: That was Alex Press, a staff writer with Jacobin Magazine. Find links to her recent article covering the Teamsters Union's negotiations with UPS and related analysis by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Although the Biden administration officially ended the government's COVID-19 pandemic national emergency in early April, Americans are still contracting the virus, being admitted to hospitals and dying, although in greatly reduced numbers. But an estimated 10 to 30 percent of those who contract COVID worldwide are dealing with a syndrome called long COVID. The condition is not well understood, and it may be that health providers' biases have held back research. After it became clear that some people took much longer than others to recover from COVID, some individuals who'd experienced long COVID joined together in the patient-led research collaborative that included doctors, scientists, data analysts, and others. In the fall of 2020, they conducted an international survey, approved by an international review board, so they could publish their findings. The collaborative focused on collecting information on patients' own description of their symptoms. One of the contributors to the collaborative's work is Yokai Raem, a psychiatrist in private practice in New York. He was diagnosed with COVID in March 2020 when he was in training as a psychiatric resident near the beginning of the pandemic. It took him several months to recover, and he now says he's 99% better. Between the lines, Melinda who spoke with Ram about what the collaborative has found in terms of the mental health impacts of long COVID and which demographic groups are most affected.
5: So we all came together initially because the medical community was really focused on the acute illness, understandably, at the time that I got sick. And so there was this whole group of people who acutely weren't tremendously sick, most of us, and were continuing to stay not tremendously sick for much longer than anticipated. So that's how the patient-led research collaborative came into being.
4: In your study, you found that 50 per, more than 50% of respondents reported having at least one negative experience with a medical provider in the first several months of illness, in which the provider was, quote, harmful, dismissive, skeptical, or apathetic. Your study that I got is talking about the mental health impacts of long COVID. How much do you think that kind of treatment would contribute to mental health impacts of long COVID?
5: It's a really hard question to answer. The way that I think about it is there's the virus itself, which can cause biological changes in the brain, and those biological changes can lead to psychiatric conditions like anxiety, depression, and sometimes even more significant ones like psychosis. So there's the biological part of it, and then there's the psychological part of it, which is A little bit of what we tried to get into in this paper, the experience of having an illness that isn't getting the attention that it deserves from the medical community, having people in your family, your close friends not really understand what it is that you're going through, and then having your providers on top of that not really understand, and everyone around you telling you what you should be doing, how to approach it, what's right and what's wrong, it can really contribute to a lot of the psychological distress so I think it's likely a combination of all of these things, the biology and the psychology, that's leading to some of the mental health ramifications.
4: It's almost 60 percent that didn't have a mental health a negative mental health outcome. How does that fit into, maybe assumption that long COVID is psychosomatic? Your study is showing that it isn't, right?
5: you're getting into a hotly debated territory. I think it's very clear from all of the science that exists that it's not a psychosomatic phenomenon by definition. So our study really just contributed to that more. The theory in some psychosomatic illnesses that some maladaptive coping that is skewed in a way that doesn't actually help you. Um, It's your body's way of attempting to cope with something, but then acting in a way that just makes it worse. So there's this theory that maladaptive coping can contribute to some psychosomatic conditions. So we did a a COPE scale in this study and looked at the different coping styles that people were utilizing, and they were quite adaptive. I mean, it was coping styles where people were really actively using emotional support, instrumental supports, and planning to really deal with the, the illness. So that told us that it's not an issue of coping that's leading to the long COVID in and of itself. And then the question of how many people have psychiatric symptoms. That has less to do with the psychosomatic because the majority of people didn't have psychiatric conditions using the threshold criteria that we used, but that's a little bit different from whether the disorder itself could be thought of as psychosomatic. There's a lot of data that shows that that's not the case, but that's not really what this study focused on.
4: It it also talked about the different demographic results that men are significantly more likely to be suicidal than women non-binary and gender non-conforming respondents were more likely to be anxious and suicidal than men and women. And people with depression, suicidality, and anxiety were significantly more likely to be younger in the 18 to 29 year age range. And then finally, lower income brackets were associated with higher levels of psychiatric outcomes. This is what you found, but is there any explanation for any of those differences?
5: I think most of it isn't surprising. Um, If you think about marginalized communities, those communities that are more likely to experience less access to good quality healthcare and overall support, the more stressors you pile on, the harder it's gonna be. So for the most part, it's not surprising. The idea that men had more suicidality to me was surprising because in general, in psychiatry, it's expected that women tend to have more suicidality and men tend to act on it more successfully. So I'm not exactly sure what to make of that particular issue, but the rest of it, I think in one way or another does does make sense. Um, the idea that younger people are more likely to experience the psychiatric outcomes. Some of my patients who are older who then have long COVID, it's sort of like they've gone through that mental process of having something in life pop up that's a challenge and they've learned how to deal with it. So this is another one of those challenges. The younger ones, this is the first time that they're struggling with something this significant that's really impacting them. So it's
0: it's a different process. That was Yo-Kai Ram, a contributor to the Patient-Led Research Collaborative on Long COVID. Learn more about the collaborative's research by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. And support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WUML in Lowell, Massachusetts, KCEI in Taos, New Mexico, KKRN in Round Mountain, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.